I'm James Milley. And I'm Alex Mito. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. What is going on, business artists? You are listening to The Artist Business Plan, which means that you are certifiably awesome. As you know, if you've been listening with us, I am James Milley, the co-founder of Superfine Art Fair, the most widespread art fair for artists in the United States, and one of the top resources for all things art, artists, and marketing of your art. Today, we've got Trey Spiegel here with us on the mic. Trey is going to share an awesome masterclass with you today on how to maximize your personal brand and expand your business. I don't know about you, but I am so excited to hear what he has to say. But first, I've got an amazing offer here just for you ABP listeners. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yes, Miami. These are just a few of the places where you and your art can meet your next collector when you take the next step and exhibit with us at Superfine Art Fairs. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine Fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we're offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest, reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. Don't miss the chance to be a part of the top business artist community in the world. All right, so we're back here with Trey Spiegel and we are ready to change the way that you think about your art career. Using one of the world's largest collections of vintage paint-by-number paintings, artist Trey Spiegel uses humor, affirmations, and wordplay that resonate with a broad pop appeal. Spiegel has collaborated with Stella McCartney, Squarespace, Anthropology Home, Armorlux, Fred Perry, PAOM, Jonathan Adler, and Fringe Studios. In 2014, he created a mural in Michelle Obama's Partnership for a Healthy America. In 2016, Reagan Arts released Transform Your Life with Color by Number. His Spiegel Studio, The Repop Shop, and Gallery 52 are housed in a former gas station in Jeffersonville, New York, in the Catskill Mountains. Welcome to the Artist Business Plan, Trey. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, before we dive into it, Trey, I want to ask you something to help our listeners get to know the real you. What is the earliest memory that you have of art? I do have a drawing that I did of my mother in a dress that I kept in one of my guest rooms for a while. It looks like a kid's drawing. It's not particularly great. But I think I always associated my sort of artistic bent from staying with my grandmother in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. She was a nurse, a school nurse, but she was the one in our family who would like book a trip to Europe or take a cruise on the Panama Canal. And so I would go and stay with her and she would take me to church and we would, she would do the flower arrangements for church and any kind of creative thing that I wanted to do, like I was like, let's paint the kitchen. And so I was like, let's paint it yellow and blue and use this wallpaper. And you know, she was like, okay, fine. After I was living with my dad and my stepmother when I was in my teens, I think I was allowed to sort of creative expl- creatively explore like decorating my room. And so I don't know that I necessarily thought of art per se. I mean, later on I did, but when I was a kid, 
I don't think I really knew what it meant. You know, I think I knew what it meant to color and stuff. And people often ask me like, oh, did you do paint by number as a kid? I was like, I was not that kind of kid. I was not patient enough to do like a paint by number. I would be more like a kid today who would do the one on your phone where you could touch the color and it fills it in and you're done in three minutes, you know, like (laughs) not like painting for, I mean, it really takes a long time to do a paint by number. I don't know if you've ever done one. I, it's it's been a long time, but uh, but yes, I I've done it, and it requires a lot of patience. You did it. You did like a kit. Yeah, yeah, like a kit when I was younger. I do you remember the subject. Ooh, you know, it was some type of jungle scene, like a like a monkey or something. It was probably a small one, like you know, six by eight or something like that. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me, like when people do, like you're much younger than I am, but when people do paint by number now, they're not like the vintage ones. They're sort of like kind of pop and they're they're kind of simplistic. And the ones from the 50s, when they first started out, were really complex. Some of them were 24 colors. They were oil. Yeah, they, were, they could be quite complicated. But one thing that I learned in painting them, I, my just to talk a little bit about my process, I take the vintage one and I redraw the line work and I renumber it. And then it's either digitally or silk screened on canvas. In 2009, I did this big painting for Stella McCartney for one of her fashion shows, which was 18 by 32 feet. And I painted it in a set shop in London. It took about four days for four people to paint. You just use bigger brushes and more paint. But it does, no matter what the size, it does, it takes about the same amount of time to paint one, you know? So a little tiny one takes about the same amount of time if it's complicated. We just kind of talked a lot about it, but again, you have one of the world's largest vintage paint by number collections. Where did the inspiration to use paint by numbers as a springboard for your artwork come from? I met this guy, Michael O'Donohue, who was the original head writer of Saturday Night Live. He started um, with Lauren Michaels in 1975. And before that, he was a writer for the National Lampoon magazine. So I knew, I kind of knew who he was. And he was responsible for some of the crazier, more sick humor of Saturday Night Live in the early days. Strangely enough, he was, you know, 20 something years older than I was, but we became friends. He, when he left Saturday Night Live, he was on the back lot of Zoetrope Studios, which was Francis Ford Coppola's movie studio for a while. And all of the producers had these decorator offices and they had Legers and Picassos and fancy artwork. And he just thought they were jerks. So he went to the Rose Bowl swap meet and bought like two paint by numbers for like 25 cents and hung them up and people started, saw them and started to give them to him. So when I knew him, he had about 200 of them and he said, oh, I'd like to do a show, a paint by number show of my work sometime. So a friend of mine had a gallery. We arranged a show and he did this incredible press release. It was around the 40th anniversary of paint by number I did my first collage for that show and it was a, a lot of fun. And two years later, he had a massive brain aneurysm and died quite unexpectedly. And his widow, who I was friends with, gave me his paint by number collection because we had that association. So I had a brownstone in Brooklyn at the time and I hung them in the hallways all the way of a four story brownstone. So I hung the original collection and I started to sort of collect more. 
And I kind of literally had that, I got peanut butter on my chocolate kind of moment where I thought of paint by number in a completely different way. And sort of in my mind's eye, I saw like 25 years worth of work, like how I could go off in all these different directions using paint by number really as a visual vocabulary and deconstructing them and recontextualizing them and lots of other different sort of conceptual and decorative pursuits. So that's kind of what I did. I I started to work on them. And at the time, I was a creative director for magazines. In 2005, I was at Us Weekly. I was the uh, art director at Us Weekly. They were paying me a lot of money. And I said, no, please stop direct depositing all this money in my account. I want to go and be an artist. So that's what I did. And I was in a relationship at the time. And about Four weeks after I left my full-time job, they said, oh, let, we should take a break. So suddenly I didn't have a job and I didn't have a relationship and I didn't have a house in the country because we shared the house in the country. So, you know, 15, 16 years ago, I kind of started all over again. Before I left my job, I was contacted by the Smithsonian when they heard about my paint by number collection. At that point, I had about four or 500. And I suggested to them doing an exhibit, like a retrospective. And they were like, this museum is really stuffy. They would never do that. But like a year later, they wrote me and said, oh, well, I pitched the idea, the curator, and we want to borrow part of your collection. So 20 years ago in 2001, there was a retrospective for a year-long retrospective at the Smithsonian where they borrowed a lot of my collection. And it was on CBS Sunday Morning. You can see on my website the video and some of this information. I sort of created a little resurgence for Paint by Number there, along with this big exhibit and the catalog they did for the exhibit. When I had that collection of 520 years ago, I then grew that more. So now I I, kind of stopped counting at 3,000. And a friend just called me tonight and they were like, oh, they're doing this event for Halloween. And we did this thing a couple of years, you know, 15 years ago. Do you have something you could do for Halloween? And I was like, oh, yeah, there are these four paint-by-numbers that they did of the monsters in the 60s. So there's like Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, and I think the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I was like, oh, I never did anything with those. That would be good. It was, you know, it's a weird sort of thing that I did this show with my friend, inherited this collection, and then it sort of made my whole life take a hard left. It's such a meaningful story that this stems from is that you had a friend and you almost like kind of inherited this passion of theirs that you shared with them. And then it's become your, your life. It's amazing. We really only know how you got somewhere by looking back, you know, because while it's happening, you're like, Oh, well, this is just, I'm just doing the next thing in front of me. And then you look back and you can kind of piece together the story so, yeah, so I'm still in touch with, with Michael O'Donoghue's widow, Cheryl Hardwick. And, and I, you know, I have this long association with paint by number. But as I said, I really use it as a visual vocabulary. It's, I think people look at it specifically as though it has something to do with paint by number, but I really just use the idea of it. But I don't know, that's for someone else to say, like, how it works. But, but yeah, that's um, when, when you have a... Uh, kind of springboard that is very solid that you feel confident in. And, you know, as the cliche goes, you got to have a gimmick. But that 
I mean, it's sort of, I use it kind of as a North Star, you know, like how it relates to a lot of different things. Right now, I have a gallery in upstate New York, and I have an exhibit of my Polaroids from the 80s. So it doesn't relate specifically to paint by number, but it's Polaroids that I took of people in downtown New York that other people know who they are. Andy Warhol, John Waters, Fran Leibowitz, Quentin Chris, like a whole bunch of people that they don't know who are friends of mine and nightclub people and drag queens. And, but, you know, once something, I, I felt confident enough as an artist to show these because they're Polaroids, like they're, they're their own thing. It's not like I tried to make some photograph it's a little square object that's been sitting around for, for all this time that finally made it into an exhibit and a 64 page book. So that, that's incredible. And also, yeah, even though it, it isn't directly connected to, to the paint by numbers work that you do, it is still coming from you, your mind, your experience. And, you know, you're someone seeing that show, I'm sure we'll see the thread with the rest of the work that you do and how it kind of makes you who you are, which, which I think is cool. The next question I have for you, Trey, how does creating within certain bounds or limits actually give one more room to play? Well, yeah, that kind of goes back to having your North star or having something that drives you. So, so when I first moved to New York, I knew a lot of artists. My friends were artists. I was working at Vogue when I was at 21 and after that at Vanity Fair but my friends, and I just thought I was working during the day, and at night I would go out to nightclubs, and I Keith Haring was a friend, Kenny Scharf, all of these artists that you know their names now, we were all sort of working in the same East Village, downtown New York scene. I had already started making work in Texas before I came to New York, but because I had a full-time job, well, this is how old I am, I did the show 40 years ago. Uh, which was called Repop, which is the name of my shop as well. And it was really a Warholian look at Houston. So I used kind of Warhol techniques to kind of frame the society of Houston, Texas. So that was really kind of my bent. Andy was my unofficial mentor in, in my own mind. I wanted to make work and I did take Polaroids and I did make work off and on and I made affirmation pieces and I made a lot of word art pieces that eventually made their way into my paint by number pieces. But honestly, I thought about it for a really long time. And that's why I say I had like a one of those epiphany moments where you're like, everything comes together in your mind. So I'd been making these word pieces and affirmations and here were these hundreds of paint by numbers with any kind of subject. And somehow in my mind, I melded them together. And very specifically about my work, what I do is I knock the words out of the image and the line work of the painting shows through with the lines and the numbers. And there are other aspects of my work where I use the paint-by-number line work or I use the vintage paint-by-numbers themselves. But that idea of knocking the word out of the background of the painting and you see the architecture of the painting, I invented. I, I feel like I invented that. Like that, well, I had never seen that before. I've since seen people copy my work, but that sort of is really what the centerpiece of my work is about, is those word piece paintings, which are on canvas. And there's lots of other drawings and silk screens and other series that I've done over the years. But that is really my, the work that kind of made its way into sort of standing for what 
I do. When you have something that that comes from this place where you think, I, I, I have to do this. I can't do anything else. I have to do this idea. To me, that was what it really came down to. It's like, I have to do this. I'm, I'm a certain age. I'm making money. I'm working in magazines. But I don't do this now. I'm never going to do it. And I can't be one of those people. Some people can do this. But I can't be one of those people where, where I'm like, oh, I'm working at this job. And I'm also an artist. And I'm also a DJ. And I'm also <laughs> a dancer. And I I feel like I have to be really clear. And, you know, people still ask me about design work, you know, years after I've left magazines. And I I taught design and I worked in magazines for a long time. But I felt like I needed to make that clean break and say, okay, I'm an artist now. And speaking of Daniel Krissa, her podcast, The Jealous Curator, she also has a book called, I think it's called Your Inner Critic is a Big Jerk. And uh, in the beginning of the book, she asked me about um, how I started to become an artist. And this is the way I practiced. I, on those forms that you fill out on the airplane where they say occupation, when I was still working in magazines and I wasn't an artist, I would write artist. And I, and even when when I first did it, I kind of thought, yeah, that's like, so such a fraud. You're like a fake. Like I had to do that a few times for me to really believe it. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It was really about whether I thought I was an artist or not. Really, honestly, in the beginning, it took me a while to be able to say that confidently. Now I say it because, you know, when you wear that hat, you can do whatever the hell you want. So, you know, being a self-described artist and being confident about that, when you have something that centers what you do, then you have these tight, then you have these parameters that you can branch out from. But if the blank page is your, or the blank canvas is your thing, it's sometimes too daunting. You know, you have to have something that is you, that is just you. And I think, you know, sometimes that comes to people really early on. I, one of the artists that I have in the gallery is 10 years old. I know his grandmother, he's an incredible, he draws constantly. His name is Halo, H-A-E-L-O. And I've talked about him on Daniel's podcast before, but this kid is an artist. He's 10 and he's, a, he's an artist like through and through is going to be one. I can't imagine he'd be anything else. He makes iPad drawings. And so there are plenty of people who start out from an early age. I didn't. But once, you, once you're really driven, you, you have to do it. I, I was realizing as you're talking that some of this comes from uh, working in magazines and deadlines. And I also had this idea years ago because I would design things for other people, logos and posters and layouts. And oh, I design things for people. And in the beginning, you're just thrilled that anybody thinks that you're good at doing anything. You put all this energy into other people's projects because you're designing things for them. And then when I left and started making artwork, besides the artwork itself, I have these other capabilities because you know, this book that I just produced, I, I wrote it, I, I published it, I, I retouched all the pictures, I, you know, I write a blog all the time, so I also can write. You know, you're wearing these different hats for yourself instead of somebody else. So that idea of having a self-imposed deadline or an, a, an outside your world imposed deadline of an art fair or an exhibit or a commission like those things also help you define, you know, where you're coming from and what it is you're doing and, you know, how you spend your time. 
Yeah, there was another guest that we had on the podcast. It might have might have been Danielle, but someone was talking about where you're simultaneously like the employee and the boss. And like as an artist, you have to create these deadlines and these these boundaries for yourself because otherwise it's like you could just wake up and do nothing. <laughs> and like, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of a little too much freedom. So that's just like being able to give yourself like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I Here's a handy tip that I use a lot. Microscope, telescope, microscope, telescope. You have to look intensely at something and then you have to pull back and see what it is you're doing and how that fits into the world. And you have to be able to, to do that often and not just have time do it for you where you look back and say, oh, that's what I did. And be able to say like, okay, this is how this looks to everyone else. I'm not so in this picture that I can't see it. Cool. All right. Well, shifting gears a little bit, Trey. So I want to talk a little more about the the gallery and shop that you have, Gallery 52 and the Repop Shop. Like you mentioned, you wear many hats as an artist and as you know an entrepreneur. What was the process like for you opening the store? And how did you know that you were ready to take that, that step beyond just making your own art, actually having a gallery as well? I had an apartment in New York City and I had a weekend place two hours outside of the city in the Catskill Mountains, which was a converted barn. And I had my studio in the barn, but then I would also rent the place out too. So whenever I rented it, I had to cram the studio back into its little space. And then when I was there by myself, I could pull everything out. And it was really one big room, the downstairs of the barn, 40 by 40 with 25 foot ceilings. So it was like the perfect loft space. But it didn't really function that well as a studio because I had to constantly convert it. I had a tiny space in New York City, but it was a block from the Whitney and I had street entrance and I could park right in front. It's like a little mini loft, but it was only 350 square feet. And I painted there. And when I did shows in Chelsea, I had like three assistants and myself were all painting in this tiny space and it worked. But as I, as I sort of transitioned to being upstate more, a friend of mine and his wife had this letterpress shop, which was in an old gas station. I did a project with them and we were friends. And then because of their kids, they moved away outside of Philadelphia and the space kind of set empty. And I was driving by one day and I don't know why I never thought of it. I was like, that would make a really good studio. And it's a 2000 square feet. 50 by 20, right on the road. It's right on a creek. It's a 1960s converted gas station. And so when I moved in here, it had a little shop already where they had set up their letterpress shop to sell cards. And on the other side of a half wall was, was where they had their old-fashioned 19th century, you know, early 20th century letterpress machines. And then upstairs, there was storage for all their excess paper and stuff. So you know, I thought, oh, I'll have a sh- I can have a shop here because I had an online shop. So I thought, well, this will allow me at least to organize everything because it's in boxes and squirreled away. Now I can put everything out. And I happen to have these two display cases that fit perfectly in the shop. And, you know, so it just sort of worked out. And there was an upstairs space that I thought I would just have like a maybe sort of private gallery or something. And then I realized, well, I might as well do a gallery. I can show my own work. And the next thing I knew, I had an actual gallery. And then I had a lot of storage space and I had studio space to make paintings too. So uh, five years ago, I rented it and five years, four years ago, I bought it. So it was something that kind of 
transition a little bit, but it's not as though I rely on it only as brick and mortar because I'm in this tiny town, even though I'm only two hours outside of New York City. It's not like I get a ton of street traffic. So I have my own website. I sell stuff on Artsy of where I'm a, where I'm a member. And I do shows of my work, but then I also do curated shows for my collection. And on occasion, I'll do curated shows of artists that I know. So it kind of allows me to, I mean, I got to say, it does eat up a lot of your time. So there are only so many hours in the day. And lately, I've been really busy with, with the gallery. So I'm planning new shows, and I'm working on them in theory, but in, but I I need to make more time to actually do them. But I'm also building a house in Mexico, which is a whole nother story where I'll have a gallery and a shop. So that like, I don't, I'm going to split myself in two. You'll get big enough to where you can either hire other people or involve other artists, or you just, you know, people who have full-time jobs think like, oh, you don't, you work for yourself. You must have so much free time. It's like, no, I work all the time. (laughs) I fall asleep thinking about work. I wake up working. It's like I can't take a two-week vacation because I don't get a paid vacation. You know, so there are. There, I'm not complaining. It was my choice, and I, my life is great. And if it's not, it's not. It's no one's fault but my own. So yeah. So if you're thinking about being your own space, first of all, have find a place that's inexpensive. But then I think you also need to have different revenue streams besides people walking in and buying your work off the wall. And I've done different. You know, I've, I've also, I have some product too, as they say in quotations, product. And definitely, you know, I think that what you're doing online, like with your website and Artsy, like, I think that's a really smart move because you, you have the advantage of you're not paying New York prices for a gallery space, but then also you're not getting the, the New York foot traffic. So definitely countering that. And a lot of the times, you know, those, the, the advantage you have is a lot of the times those galleries in the city, they they need to be using Artsy to drive traffic and sales anyway. So it, it ultimately, you know, if you do that, then you're you're in good shape, I would say. Um, and it, it seems like you've been having enough success to uh, to opening a second gallery. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call that uh, you're doing something right. <laughs> uh, that's also I'm gonna spend I'm gonna split my time between upstate New York and Merida, Mexico, which is in the Yucatan you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but yeah, I have to figure out how to make both of these places work when I'm here and and when I'm there and when I'm not there and obviously online and Instagram and, you know, building your audience, however you do it through your MailChimp or through your website, through, you know, collecting email addresses and, you know, being in direct contact and texting people, oh, we've got these new prints or, you know, so you're, some people don't feel comfortable standing in front of their work. They just want to make it and put it in a gallery and have somebody else deal with it. But if you can stand in front of your work and you can understand, you know, who your audience is and what, what different kind of audiences want to spend different kinds of money, whether it's a print or a poster or a, a tote bag or a, or a painting, you know, all of those things are valid and they all, you know, sort of add up to it's, you're still, it's still your work, you know, it's still you that's doing it. So how to make all that stuff work. Some people, you know, my brain works like that. Some people, I think if you want to try to force yourself to do something that doesn't feel comfortable, it's probably not going to work that great. You know, your brain has to kind of work that way already 
there's certainly things you can learn and there's th- certainly things you can adapt to. But people who say like, I should do that, like the should, it's not going to get you there. Right. Doing something just because it feels like you're supposed to, uh, you know, I, I would take that, that telescope perspective and think, okay, why, why am I doing this besides just that I think I should and really think about like, what am I excited about? What do I know is the, the right next step? All right. So we are going to come right back and Trey is going to close out our conversation talking about collaborations and regrouping. Uh, but first, another message from our sponsors. Artists, have you ever felt anxious, alone, and not sure about the next move for your career? Good news, those days are over. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine art fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we are offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest, reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. We can't wait to welcome you to the Superfine community and start helping you sell more art today. So... Trey, you have collaborated with some big brand names, like we mentioned uh, in the bio at the start. How did you get their attention and what are four steps that an artist can take to begin collaborating with brands? Wow. Well, I would say step number one is get them to come to you (laughs) because honestly, that's pretty much how most of my collaborations worked. I wish I could tell you some handy trick to get their attention, but um, I could talk about specifics for a couple of things. So you'll see how the process worked for me. As I said, I used to work uh, at Us Weekly and our beauty editor was a good friend of mine. After I had actually left the magazine, we still stayed in contact and our offices were in really close to Rockefeller Center and Anthropology had their flagship store in Rockefeller Center. So she was in the store one day and the the owner of Anthropology was there. And so she went up to them, introduced herself, gave her a business card and said, your beauty for Anthropology is like not good at all. So long story short, they like, she got an interview and they hired her to like, okay, then tell us what to do. So she wanted to do a specific project and she approached me because she knew about my work. So I was kind of talking to her about it. And she said, why don't you come to Philadelphia and bring a bunch of your stuff? And I want to set up a meeting with all the buyers and I want them just to see what you do. So I loaded my car up with silk screens and paintings and like everything that I could like cram into my car and drove to Philadelphia. And I got this, you know, if you tried to do it, it would never happen. I don't know how it happened, but I was in a meeting with every buyer from Anthropology Home not from the clothing part. And I showed them my work and every buyer wanted to do something. So I did rugs and pillows and sheets and bedding and puzzles and plates. And so the other aspect of that was I knew how to comp all of these things. I knew how to mock all these things up. I didn't have to just give them my artwork and let them do with it what they wanted to. I could actually adapt it. And if we were going to do we ended up doing three rugs. Well, I probably did 15 rug designs. 
getting them to kind of notice me, I knew someone in the company, but I didn't really necessarily approach them. So it was somewhat symbiotic. Around that same time, this was the summer of 2009, I got a call from a call or an email from someone that said, oh, Stella McCartney wants to collaborate with you for on a backdrop for her fashion show. And I thought, well, that sounds good. So like two weeks went by and I didn't hear anything. So I sent an email and I was like, okay, well, thanks for getting in touch. Maybe it'll work out in the future, whatever. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're, she wants to do it. We're going to set up a call with you and Stella. I never really asked her how it happened, but I imagine it came up with the Google search that she was searching paint by number and my name came up. And so we talked about something specific to do. She did this really colorful collection. And for her at the time, you can see this video on my website too of me uh, in Paris at the fashion show. But she did this very colorful collection. And so I made this backdrop of the Arc de Triomphe, which was based on a vintage paint by number that said yes on it. And I did was not paid, but I said, okay, I want, I I want three things. I want a press release on me two or three things. I can't remember what I said. I want a press release and I want a picture with Stella in front of the backdrop. So this was in the Palais de Tokyo in Paris. The painting has people with umbrellas near the Arc de Triomphe. It was raining that morning. This an all white space. There was an 18 by 32 foot backdrop of mine that said yes on it. She got amazing reviews. P.S. Her, just as a side note, her father was there and when she came to introduce me, someone had introduced me to her father. I had just bought four Beatles paint by numbers and I brought the Paul McCartney one with me and I had a silver pen and it already had a painted signature on it. So he signed underneath or Paul McCartney. But, and so I, you know, my bonus, I got to meet Paul McCartney. So I paid, but I got like a million dollars worth of publicity because if you search Trace Beagle to Stella McCartney, I think you'll see that painting. And that came out like right after that, the anthropology collection came out. So that was just like a one of those one, two things that happened that looked like I was a much bigger artist than I actually was at the time. I mean, it's, it's still amazing to me to this day. But I, I think for whatever you do, if you do something specific, and you know someone, if you have an idea, I wouldn't discourage you from getting in touch with companies or brands, or if you know a fashion designer that's maybe not Stella McCartney, but a fashion designer that you want to collaborate with, that I would definitely do that. You know, like think of collaborations. I wanted to, I paint my paintings with house paint. And so I, I use Benjamin Moore. So I thought, oh, I should do some collaboration with Benjamin Moore. I had all these ideas for ads and all sorts of things. And my friend knew someone at Benjamin Moore and we sort of sent some emails and it never went anywhere. I wouldn't discourage people from getting in touch with other people, but most of the collaborations I've done, they've gotten in touch with me for one reason or another. And after the Stella McCartney thing, it could have just been because of that. Like, I don't, you never really know exactly unless they tell you. But I think if your work relates to something specific or a brand, or if there's something that you like find a back door into that idea. And, I, you know, I would pursue it. And 
so I, I would encourage anybody to do whatever they think would necessarily work and have a fantasy about whatever brand that you want to do. I mean, I never had that either one of those ideas. Like they made my paint these things that I did into plates that I eat off of and have for years. And I, that was never a fantasy of mine. I was like, I never thought of that idea. Let your uh, brand association go wild. Right. And I, I definitely agree with that. And also, even though you you had these connections to people, I mean, everything that you had done, like up to that point is how you had that connection with them. So step one, I would say for artists listening is if you haven't taken the time to surround yourself by people who are in industries and, and uh, like parallel fields that are like could end up being advantageous for your art career, might be good to do that. I, I really like what you mentioned before about you have the the skill set to not just hand someone your art and be like, okay, figure it out, but you can actually guide them along the process of like the mock-ups and, and having it really nicely designed already. I know from experience with Superfine that a lot of these big brands, the reason that they want to work with an artist is because they are not personally creative. And they really love when you just give them everything that and just making their job very easy is attractive to them. Yes. I think conceptualizing things and, you know, once again, really being firm in where you're coming from and it might mean collaborating with people. So if you don't, if you're not a graphic designer or if you don't have the skill sets necessary, it's not like you won't have access to them. So you have a creative circle of friends and not not everyone does exactly what you do probably. So, you know, if it involves a model or a photographer or a graphic designer or somebody who has a relationship with someone who can print fabric or whatever, you can seek those things out. And I, I guess what I was trying to say before too, which maybe I didn't say clearly was it's like an organic process. And so when you're authentic with what it is you're doing, and where you're coming from, like people will identify with that and they'll sort of gravitate towards you. So it's like you, I work a lot from law of attraction and putting out into the world what I want to come back. I wanted to do this uh, project with Michelle Obama in my mind years ago. I gave, when she was in the White House, I did this piece for art for Obama and I ended up giving her something through her secretary. And in my mind, I thought I would love to do a mural with Michelle Obama. And I just put it out in the world, in my head, like not out loud. And somehow it came back the other way through a friend of mine, through partnership, through Healthy America and this water company called Wata. They got all these artists to do labels for this water. They were trying to get kids to drink water in school. So they got street artists and different artists to make these labels. And I said, I had mocked up a painting and some other ideas. And when they found out that Michelle Obama was coming to the new museum, they were like, let's get Trey to do this painting. So I did this big painting that said, drink up, that had the ocean. And, you know, she, she ended up coming to the mu new museum. And you'll also see on my website, there's pictures of her that I still can't believe exist. She has her arms around, you know, it's like, I still look at that picture. I'm like, we look like we're like, have known each other for more than eight, 18 seconds. But that was because I took the initiative with this project and I mocked a few things up and they said, oh, let's get Trey to do this. So, so sometimes it's just going that step beyond and also 
it really did come back. Like I had this idea, like I want to do this mural for Michelle Obama. My idea was like on the lawn of the White House or something, but it, it ended up happening. And so my friends were like, oh, did you tell her that you gave her this thing? I was like, no, I didn't. There was like the world press was right in front of us. I was like, I was surprised I could make a sentence, you know? So sometimes it's just, you know, like having that kind of crazy dream. And sometimes it's just, you know, organically following some opportunity that you're given that you're thinking, I don't know where this is going. I'll just do it and we'll see. I will add one more thing, which is, which is uh, a, a two-part line on a 3D print that I did of a paint can. And the question affirmation is, what do you want to happen? Which a lot of people fantasize about, but the second part is the most important part. What are you willing to do to make it happen? I think everyone listening should really just key in on that. Think about that for a second. I I completely agree. And and that's a question that people should be asking themselves more. To all of you business artists out there, Trey has been here sharing his amazing perspective. You can listen to this and all of our past podcasts on our website at superfine.world. And to connect with Trey, you can follow him on Instagram at Spiegel Studio. And you can also visit treyspiegel.com. There's one other thing I was going to tell you I forgot. One, I write this blog for World of Wonder, and I've been doing it for eight years. And before that, I was sort of writing a blog for my website. But now I do posts about art and all sorts of other things, and I put it on my own blog. And some odd things that I won't mention specifics of what they are that I put on the blog get the most traffic like three or 400 people a day come to my website. I don't know how or where, but some of it is because of these weird blog posts that I've done. But writing a blog about whatever you want to write about, if you can write or getting guest bloggers or you know, connecting through Instagram, sometimes Instagram is a way, great way to drive traffic to your website. But just having a static website with your artwork it's fine and it's a great archive. And actually I use it to find things because everything is on my website. But if you can find a way to add to your website and do a blog that you can share on social media, it's a great way to drive traffic and to keep your site fresh. Absolutely. I mean, like you mentioned, it it turns your website from being a portfolio to being this active thing that like people have a reason to continue going back to besides just like, oh, let me see the the work I've already seen. It's there's something to to go back forward that's that's new. So I I hundred percent agree on that. Yeah, it de- it definitely works. It's like it's something that seems daunting because you think like, oh God, well now I've got to put something on there. But there are things that interest people all the time, and you just have to share it. That's it doesn't have to be five hundred words. It can be quick, and it can also it doesn't have to be revolutionary every single time it can be where you're just you're you're talking about something that's on your mind that you know whatever it may be whether it's something that inspires you something interesting that happened to you um you know a a, an artwork that you've been working on for a long time whatever it may be just like again people want to be along for the the ride as as you are making work and living life as an artist like people want to experience that with you and uh, using using a blog, I agree, is is just it's such a good way to do it because you can talk about things longer than you have the opportunity to on social media. Yeah, you can go a little bit deeper. I also use a guideline of I try to do 
and I mostly do because I write for this other blog, but I try to do like 75% about stuff that's not about me and do 25% or less that's about me directly. And I think, all right, if people are interested in what I'm interested in, they should be interested in me, I hope too. And if they're not, well, I'm, they're off the mailing list. To share other people's work and other ideas and that people love process. Oh my God, do they love process. They love to see studios and messy tables and ideas for things and your dog. Like they like to see the process of making work and how an artist lives. Cool. Well, Trey, thank you again for that as well. It's been such a pleasure having you here with us today. Uh, thank you again for, for sharing your perspective with our listeners. It was totally a lot of fun. Thank you so much, James. Absolutely, Trey. Uh, everyone else, have an awesome rest of your day. And remember to stay on top of your artist business plan, get out there and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this and all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world.